God, I pray that you'd come tonight, send your spirit, and do what you can do. And that is to open our eyes and our hearts. If I am left up here to myself, uh, none of those things will happen. We won't leave changed. But we believe that if your spirit shows up and and works in us, then we can leave changed. uh, That we will begin to experience new life that comes from you. So I pray that you would come now. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read about seven verses down through verse 18. So let's, uh, let's give attention as we read God's Word. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. Uh, As we begin to talk about friendships, I want to tell you a story. Uh, When I was right after, in fact, the night after I graduated from high school, I was from a little town in South Oklahoma called Duncan, and I went to a public high school. Duncan High School is the only one. There's about 250 people in our graduating class, and some people in the community thought it would be a great idea, and it was a great idea, to get together and have this thing called Project Graduation. Okay, did any of y'all have something like that at your high schools? It's basically, they get together and just throw a big party for the graduating seniors, mostly in an effort to keep people from going and doing something stupid that night, right? And so the people who really wanted to do that, they just waited until the next night. That's okay. Um, it didn't happen that night. No one died on graduation night. Um, <clears throat> through drinking and driving, all the stuff they wanted to avoid. Anyhow, uh, so the night as it laid out, it's just tons of stuff to do. It's at this big community center in Duncan. And uh, you run around, you play games, you do all sorts of things, hang upside down on Velcro walls and, you know, put on sumo suits and do what's supposed to be called wrestling, but really it's just awkwardness. And, um, <laughs> and you get to the end of it, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, I find myself standing around with 250 of my classmates with my arms around people I don't even know, And we're all listening to Michael W. Smith sing, Friends are Friends Forever. (laughs) And we're all crying. We're all bawling. Everybody begins to hug everyone else. And, of course, then I'm hugging people and telling them I'm going to miss them. And it might have been the first time I ever talked to them. But this is just happening out in the room because we're friends, apparently. And friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And um, it was really just a a bizarre scenario. So... What then, is that friendship? You know, it's just this kind of having an emotional experience together, or maybe kind of a a sappy moment together. Does that validate something and and let it be called friendship? Or what is friendship? What do we do with it? How how are we to think about it? Um, The passage tonight is talking about love. And and really, he's not, it's not a a romantic love he's talking about, and that's kind of evidence as it's played out. And so I'm going to take this and basically say, that John is here talking about friendship, and he's writing to a church. I mean, so it's not unreasonable to say, look, 
I'm, I'm writing to you about loving the people who you're in the church with, your friends, um, those who are around you. But as we think about love and friendship, particularly the word love, there's really no more hijacked word than that one in our culture. Think about it. You love everything. You love your phone. You love your crazy socks that you found at Gap for $2.99. You love uh, your mom and dad. Um, you love the boyfriend that you've only had for two months. You love your car. You love new stuff. You love all these things. And so if, if you love everything, what then can the word love mean, right? How do we heighten the, word, uh, the meaning of what the word love means? Well, we're going to try tonight. And I want to suggest three things about love and kind of this friendship love that we're going to talk about tonight. And I'm going to say this, that true friendship is gospel reflecting, it's gospel reflecting, it's action driven, and that it's heart revealing. Okay, let's see what we mean about that. Um, Yes, page two, sorry, had a thing down there. Um, Okay, so before I talk about what I mean when I say that true friendship is gospel Uh, or gospel reflecting, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean that you have to be a Christian to have friends. Good, because some of you are out there thinking, this is going to be crazy because I'm not a Christian and I have friends. Uh, You don't have to be a Christian to have friends, okay? Because you can relate to other people on any number of levels. You can have things in common. You can have shared experiences and things you want to do with each other. And there are all sorts of reasons that you can be friends. It's also true that even though you may not... Uh, love God, you may not follow God, you may not want anything to do. What I've suggested from the Bible, given I know you don't probably believe the Bible either, but what I'm saying is that we are created as relational beings. And that even though sin has come and messed up things and really made that hard, that it hasn't just obliterated that. That we still need to relate to one another, and so we still want friendships. And so that's what what I'm saying. If you're a non-Christian, yes, you can have friends. And you can be a friend, that's great. But when I say that it's gospel reflecting, I am saying that the best friendships show forth something that is true and that is happening in the gospel. Okay, The gospel is simply that Jesus came and gave Himself for other people. He came and gave of His life. And God sent Him to give of His life. So it's a, it's a self-giving. It's a, it's a move. It's something that happened there. So it reflects the gospel. Let's see where we get this in verse 16. John is defining love this way. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And he says brothers because he's talking to the church here. In fact, Jesus himself, before he went to the cross, he says this. He says, this is my commandment. He was telling his disciples, kind of the final push. This is what I want you to remember. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. And so true friendship, the best friendships where you see people serving one another, caring for one another, giving up their time and all sorts of things, that that is reflecting something that's true in the gospel. That that is coming out of that uh, that very inclination. Okay, it makes sense then. That when the way John sets this up, because in the very first few verses, he's setting up this not so loving scene, right? Um, Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, uh, they had another one, but Cain and Abel came out and Cain kills his brother Abel. He kills him, he murders him. And John is saying, 
Believe it or not, that's not love. <laughs> that is not nice. You shouldn't do that. And he sets that in opposition to what Jesus does. Because Jesus, um, far from going and murdering someone, he comes and gives his own life for someone. It's a complete juxtaposition, complete opposite ends of the spectrum. So not only um, ought we not to murder people. Yeah, if you take anything home tonight, don't murder people. Not only are we not to, not, or not to murder people, we are called um, through this model to give ourselves for others, to lay down your life for your friends. Now, the truth is that most of you won't be called to give up your life for your friends, at least not here in America where it's pretty safe to be a Christian. Um, it's pretty safe to be a friend and do things like that. Most of you probably won't die, and that's the truth of it. But you actually will probably have lots of opportunities, particularly in college, believe it or not, because things like gossip happen. You'll have plenty of opportunities to stand up for friends. Guys and girls, it's those moments when people are sitting around talking about that person and it just kind of keeps going. And they just keep talking and you kind of feel weird like, I feel kind of dirty being a part of this. Or maybe you're even adding to it. And I simply want to say that when we're in those moments and when we're not standing up for our brother, we're not acting as a true friend, even if they're not there. We're not acting as a true friend. We're supposed to stand up for people. We're supposed to stand up and, and care for those and give perhaps of our own reputation to save the reputation in, of those around you. Because it's what you do in a true friendship. You give of yourself. Uh, when I was in junior high, I could tell you lots of junior high stories and we could cry together. But this one is not a cry Well, maybe a cry story. I don't know. Um, I was in seventh grade. I hadn't gone through puberty. Uh, funny. Um, and uh, I played football, which makes the first statement even more funny. Um, and we were, uh, one day, we didn't go to the football field because it had rained. So we were running around the school, just around the school. It wasn't very fun, but we were doing it. And I wasn't as fast as others, if you could believe that. But I, what I did have was a really cool Massimo hat. Now, that means nothing to you except it's a brand at Target now. But back when I was younger, when I was a child, um, Massimo was a really cool kind of edgy brand. And you could only get it at stores like Gadzooks in the mall, which, are there, are there still Gadzooks around? It'd be like, oh, shoot, like Hot Topic, kind of, like Hot Topic, but not as dark-ish. Um, <laughs> let's just say this. I was being pretty hip when I had a purple and kind of mauve-colored Massimo hat. It was, it was pretty cool. Well, uh, some of the fast kids came around, and they took the hat from me, and they were running. I think I've told the story here. They were running, and I couldn't catch them, so I just thought, well, it's been a good hat. I won't have it again. And then Chucky, Chucky came to the rescue. Now, Chucky was the biggest kid in our class. He, if I was five feet tall, he was 6'2". He was huge, and he was fast. And he saw it happen, and for whatever reason, he decided he was going to take up for me. And so when the fast kids, they came back around, Chucky was standing in the way, and he said, give me the hat. And just nobody argued with Chucky. <laughs> I don't know why Chucky did that. I don't know his motivation behind it. Um, we went to elementary school together, so maybe he felt some kindred spirit with me. I don't know. But what I do want to say is that when he did that, he laid his own kind of reputation on the line. He took the hit for me uh, that I couldn't take for myself. He was willing to do that for me. And what I want to say is the, this, 
kind of that heartfelt impulse that moved Chucky to do that, whatever it was. And the heartfelt impulse that's behind every good big brother story where, you know, big brother comes and cares for a little brother or little sister and, and comes and picks them up when they're in danger or something like that. That all of that stuff is so wonderful and we love it because we love to think that there would be someone who would do that for us. That there would be somebody who would take up for us, would, would risk something for us. And what I want to say is that in the message of Christianity, in the gospel, that's true. The Bible says that actually happened. It's when the person of Jesus said, I'll risk absolutely everything I am for you. I'll give up all my comforts in heaven. I mean, he was ruling over the world, like sitting up there doing his thing, ruling over the world. He said, look, I'll give it up for you. I'll become, a, I'll become sin for you. The Bible says that's true. And so our hearts long for something like that. Whether or not you've ever known that the object was Jesus, we want to know that someone will take up for us. Paul says in Romans 8 that that God showed the extent of His love for us in this, 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ doesn't wait for you to get your life together. He doesn't wait for you to get clean or to stop sinning or stop looking at porn or whatever it is that you think makes you unlovable, he comes right in the middle of that and says, that doesn't disqualify you. That actually qualifies you. Because Jesus came to save sinners. He won over a whole bunch of people who were against them in their hearts, going the other way. And true friendship has at its core something of this nature. Something of this others first, me second, self-giving nature. But secondly, as we begin to see that true friendships are gospel-reflecting, we also see that true friendships must then, they must be sustained by our actions. They must be action-driven. Now, hear me say that before... Uh, let, me, let me kind of spell this out before you start thinking um, you have to work for love. Okay, This is what I'm saying. If we had the time to look at this whole letter to see what John has written, um, this would make more sense. But I'm just going to tell you that in the context of these four chapters in this letter, John is looking at a church that apparently through the things he's responding to, that apparently they were out there saying, oh, we love each other. We're doing so great at this love thing, and we really care for the brothers, and we really care for all those people in our midst. It's word got to John that that just wasn't true, that that wasn't happening, that that actually wasn't the case on the ground. Okay, What he was saying is you can't just say you love people and let that be true, But rather, love necessitates action. It means that you do something for people. Okay, we see this in verse 17. It says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, true friendship uh, compels you to meet the needs of those around you. It does. We all know stories, and perhaps it's you, um, but stories of Christians who have walked past a homeless man or a homeless woman, and the guy or the woman says, you know, can I have some money or can I have some food or something like that? And instead, the good, well-intentioned Christian gives them a tract, right? Gives them a gospel tract and says, this is what you really need. Okay, does he need that? Does she need that? Yes. Does that person need prayer? Sure. But they really kind of need to eat also. They need to eat dinner tonight. She needs diapers for her baby. There are 
tangible needs to be met that require action on the Christian's part. On our part, if we're to show, uh, show and, and live out what a true friend is. And John says that, in fact, it's not just that we should do that, but when you don't do that, and, and given, you may not have the means. You may not have food. You may not have money to give someone. You don't have to feel overly guilty about that if you just can't do it. But he says, if you're able, if you have the world's deed, you know, the world's goods, and you don't do it, then you're at the opposite end. Not only are you not loving them, you're hating them. You're not giving them what they need. You're not uh, meeting their necessity. So let's think about this in our life. Yes, your roommate needs uh, you to pray for them when you come home at night and they're crying over there on their bed. They do need you to pray for them. But what they really may need is for you to sit down and just ask them what's going on. Even if it means your whole schedule for the rest of the night gets messed up. Even if you have a sorority meeting at night. Even if you have, a training, even if you have uh, your engineering club meeting. Friendship, because I know that's most of you. Um, <laughs> friendship necessitates that you meet that need. That you do something about it. Love pushes us toward that instead of just saying like, I'll pray for you. I've got to go. I've really got to get out of here. We have to think about stuff like that. Or when you're walking down your hall and you see the, the international student that you've seen every single day, five times a day since the first day of class or the first day you all moved in, he really or she really loves it when you say hi to her. They really do. They really love it when you say hi to them. What they really need is to go to Walmart. And that's not, I mean, that could be funny. It's not. I mean, they really need to go to Walmart because they're out of toothpaste. Or what they may really want is for you to ask them to go eat in the calf with you. <gasps> Heaven forbid we go take people we don't know and get to know them over a meal. That's crazy, right? But that's what, that's what John's saying here is that love has to be substantiated and fleshed out in our actions and the things that we do. But I know we're all busy. And I know that we all have things that we need to get done. And I'm not going to overburden you with this. I simply just want to say, I personally am very thankful that that was not Jesus' mindset. That He didn't consider what was going on, all the things He had to do, to be too much. Um, And that He didn't have time to come, I don't know, die on the cross. Jesus willingly set aside his comfort and his own agenda for what the Father wanted him to do. And so he came and he did this. His love compelled him to act, and so should ours. Many of you would officially say that you love your friends. Most of you in here would. I mean, why would you not? You don't hate your friends. So most of you would officially say you love your friends. But if someone out there were to charter, your charter, chart where you spent your time, where you spent your energy, where you spent... Um, your emotional capital. That's a very weird word. Uh, where you spent your emotions. If someone were to out there and were charting that, would the evidence actually show and substantiate the fact that, or your claim that you love your friends? Would it? I mean, we tend to love the things in, that we spend the most time on. We tend to have those things at the very core of our heart. That's why so many of you get so mad when you make bees. Oh, no. Because you've made grades the most important thing. Maybe you ought to be a little more mad when your friend is upset with you that you haven't spent any time with them. So what happens? What do we do when we're in that situation? Well, we have to 
We have to repent of that. We have to confess it and say, and look at it and see it what it is. That it's ugliness. It's the same problem that we talked about the last two weeks. It's selfishness. That at the end of the day, you just want to do what you want to do. And you have to look at that and call it what it is. And say, that's ugly. That's selfish. That's not what God has created me to do. So we call it ugliness. We call it sin. And we say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to be that way. And we change. And we do things. Our actions then would demonstrate that we actually believe that's true. And then we go out fueled by the gospel. That the love of God reminds us. In Christ, the love of God reminds us that we can be others-focused. That we can do things for others. That we can lay down ourselves for them and meet their needs. But catch this. Unless your motivation, unless the fuel for you going out and loving people and being action-oriented toward others and loving them that way, unless your motivation is the fact that you have been deeply loved by the God of heaven who gave Himself for you, unless that is at the core of who you are, you will get tired and you will get burnt out and you will stop whenever it's inconvenient for you. That's just the way it is. We have to be changed from the inside out. We can't come and just be busy all of a sudden with doing things and think that's going to change us inside. It has to happen from in here and work itself out. Okay, the second thing I want to say about action-driven love, and I know this is going to be very hard for most of you to believe, but it's that it's possible for your roommate to mistake emotion-driven love I'm sorry, emotion-driven action for love-driven action. Okay, let me, let me explain this. It's possible for other people, like your roommate, certainly not you, to mistake what you might have on the front end of a dating relationship as true, deep friendship. Now, I know you'd never do that, but your roommate might. So, um, that after you spend um, tons of time together, and after you do tons of things for each other, you know, and you... You're up talking until 3 in the morning. So that's an action, right, Brent? Okay, I'll just set that on the table for right now. Uh, But what about when um, you get up and write a note and put it on his car at 4 in the morning, text him, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, he wakes up and all of a sudden he can't sleep anymore. It's like, well, I've got to go read the note. And so he goes out and gets the note off of his car, he reads it, and he's so up and worked up now that he says, well, I can't go back to sleep. I'm just going to make her breakfast. And so she comes back over for breakfast at 6.30. And all of these things are actions. And so it would be true that you could look at me and say, look, we're, we're being friends. We have all these actions to substantiate our friendship and show that it's true. Well, I don't want to be a killjoy on those things at all because those things are really fun. They really are. The front end of relationships of the dating sort... That stuff's really fun. And do it. Go do crazy things and stay up ridiculous hours and keep your clothes on and all that stuff. But um, do those things. I'm not discouraging them. But what I do want to say, though, is that what you have in a, that sort of relationship on the front end is not the most mature friendship that you will ever have, even in that relationship. You, you can't mistake that. You can't look at what you'll have after two months of pure bliss and say, we are best friends. Because time has simply not let that play out. I understand you may like each other and you have the whole puppy love thing going on. That's fine. Just know that that's not a mature friendship. That emotions can cloud some of this. Okay, Now they fuel some of it and that's great, but they can also make it really confusing. And so here, 
Here's one of the advantages to dating for a long time. Now, hear me out. There are definite disadvantages for dating a really long time. But here's one advantage. Is that the, at some point the newness wears off. And you begin, to have, uh, you begin to have fights and you begin to argue about things. And you realize that, oh, maybe we don't have everything in common. Okay? Now, what is that? That can, be really, that can really freak some of y'all out as you're in relationships. But what that is is it's healthy. Because that's what any friendship has is this realization that you don't have everything in common and you need to talk about these things. And everything's not as rosy and perfect as it once seemed. But here's the beauty in it. It's when you get to that point in relationships, you can actually make a realistic judgment of saying, is this worth it? Is this person, even with those differences that we have or even with their faults, is this worth me continuing to ask her out or me continuing to pursue her or girls saying yes to him when he's pursuing you? Is it worth it? Some of you will say yes. And I would suggest that when you do, And when you have a deep friendship at the core of your dating relationship, you have great hope for having a happy marriage. And you'll hear me talk about this in a few weeks. The best marriages come from people who are friends. Who are friends. Who haven't been... I've given away the boat for a couple weeks, but that's okay. It's The best marriages are friends. It's for when you don't go into a relationship saying, Oh, I can't date her. She's too good of a friend. Or I don't want to mess up the friendship, which is exactly what we say. Because we don't want to mess up the friendship, and that's right. And so what we do is we go date people on really good grounds, like, she's hot, right? Um, He's really cute. Or she's really intelligent. And he's really intelligent. All those things are great. All those things are great. But those things don't last the test of time. I'm not saying the person becomes dumb or just all of a sudden becomes ugly. I'm not. But if you can't be friends and if you can't have the give and take that happens in relationships and the self-giving, if you are not motivated by a desire to love that other person through your actions, then you're on shaky ground. That's a tough foundation to build, kind of backfill a friendship on. But look, I know you do this. You date the cutest and the hottest person you can. And then you try to figure out and try to convince all your friends that they should like him too and they should be friends. And so you kind of in a back door come in and try to make this thing work. And you try to make it be friends, but we'll talk about that in a few weeks. We're not there yet. Now that y'all think I have three heads and I'm crazy. Um, So uh, let me see where we are. I lost all this. Um, You shouldn't date people just because they're available, right? You shouldn't date people just because they're available like, oh, you're single? Well... I'm single, I guess we should date. Um, That's also not a good ground. Or even because the person's interested in you. Now, it's awfully flattering for when someone comes to you and says, I'm kind of digging you. It's really awesome. And that things happen in here and butterflies and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean you have to date them. Right? You don't have to go on in that. But I would suggest then that, that you date friends. You date people who you've seen them spend time with others, you've already noticed that actually she has good girlfriends and, and I see her doing stuff for them all the time. Or that he doesn't always just surround himself with girls to kind of defeat his insecurity. He has good guy friends and he's, he loves other people. He serves other people. That's the kind of person 
that's the kind of person you want to be joined to. That's the kind of person you want to date. And that's the kind of person, ultimately, if your desires to be married, you would want to, that you would want to marry. Because they're being fueled from the gospel. And their love is being fleshed out in actions and the way they love people. Finally tonight, third thing. In light of what we've seen, I want to suggest, I want us to see that our friendships are heart-revealing. Our friendships are heart-revealing. Let's reread uh, verse 14 and 15. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, John's going into very kind of churchy language in what he says here. This John is also the author of the Gospel of John. And he loves the phrase life and eternal life. That's just one of his things. Um, He has several of them. That's a big one. And what he's saying is that um, it is possible for you to know that you are a Christian, to have assurance of salvation as a Christian, and that you have trusted in Jesus, and that He has bought for you eternal life instead of eternal death. It's possible to know that by asking and answering the question, Do I love those around me? Do I love those around me? Or in other words, does my time, does my actions, my money, my life, what I think about all the time, reflect the fact that I am no longer self-focused, but that I've been redefined in there. And I now become others-focused. I am not all about myself. That the sin issue of self and self-importance and self-focus has been and is beginning to be rolled away. It's beginning to be healed. And John's saying that can be a litmus test. It can also be scary. If you look at yourself and you realize, I'm kind of all about me. And my friendships all end up being about me and everyone needing just to help me. You might not be converted. I'm not going to sit here and say you're not. I couldn't do that without talking with you a lot about this. But John's saying it's reasonable to say that. Because he says we know that we have passed, out, passed from death into life. We know it because we love the brothers. It is a cause and effect for him. It seems to be obvious. Friends, he's also saying that if you, have, if you have hatred toward others, whether it's ever acted upon, or if you have anger toward others, whether or not you've ever let anybody know about it, and you harbor that in, you keep it in, and you never let it out, you never move toward people, you never confess to God, God, I've had this in here forever. I can't let it go. I don't know how. Unless you start going down that line of how to be healed from the anger and how to confess the hatred you have for others, John's saying you can't have that and be a Christian and have true friendships because hatred and anger with others is, in a sense, the opposite of being a friend. You don't have the new heart which John says leads to new life if you continue to hate others and hold bitterness and grudges. And even if you say that you love Jesus and you believe that He died on the cross for your sin, but you, ref- you refuse to want to change. You refuse to repent of your hatred. That ought to give you pause. Again, I couldn't say it means you're absolutely not a Christian, but it ought to give you pause. Why is it you can't hate others? Is it just that they did something so terrible to you? They hurt you that bad? That may be true. But the gospel frees us up to forgive others. And to say, you know what? That really did hurt, but that doesn't define me anymore. 
It doesn't define me anymore. Your actions are are demonstrating you don't love these people. And John says in verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. And if you don't love, friends, then you're still seen and defined in God's eyes as in the camp of death, as in the camp of still being in your sin because our sin deserves death. So we must cross from death to life. We must make that jump. How does that happen? Let me talk to the Christians for, in the room for just a minute. It's possible to struggle in friendships because of your selfishness. Hear me say that. But I'm not saying Christians are the perfect friends that we always do, do everything right. It's very possible to struggle because of our selfishness. And it's even possible to hate others for a time. It really is. Um, I can tell you why that is. <laughs> I can give you examples. Um, this is because we haven't arrived yet. And for non-Christians in here, if you've been hated and really treated poorly by a Christian, hear me say this. It's because we're not there yet. We're not the best friends we could be. We're still in progress. We're works in progress. And hopefully, if the Bible's true, we're being changed. And over time, we will love better. And we will give of ourselves more than we do. And we won't be so, so self-focused. And that's what Jesus is doing. Is He's begun that and He's continuing to do that in us. But what do we do? Well, we confess that to God. And we constantly, in the Christian life, we're constantly having to go to God and confess the fact that, you know what? I've been living for myself again. And God, that's not right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And friend, then look at the Gospel. Look at what Jesus has done and say, I need that to begin to define me again. I need to see someone else that they gave their life for me. They gave their love for me and that it was substantiated by His actions. We should always be doing this with God and others. We should always be confessing and repenting and encouraging, encouraging each other to believe. This is a mark of what it means to be a Christian. You don't just like say a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart when you're seven and then you're good. You, you are good. If you've been justified, you've been justified. But we're called to a life of repentance and constantly turning away from our sin and turning back to Jesus and saying, no, it's not that we have to be resaved, but we're saying, I still need you, Jesus. I still need you. And in doing so, when you do this, and when this begins to happen, you show that you have new life in you. That the new life has begun to take effect. A life that is defined by something, something that someone else has done for you. Okay, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're skeptical of religion or Christianity or whatever, and perhaps you've uh, ever had this thought, I'm not saying you have, I'm just saying perhaps, that I don't like that I can't stop hurting people. Or maybe you're a Christian, you've had that. That I don't like that every relationship around me, all I seem to be able to do is hurt people. That they all just fall apart and I think it's all my fault. I'm frustrated that my relationships always end up being about me and what others can do for me. And if on that last point, if you can look at things and see that the common denominator is that they all end up being about you, I would invite you to confess to God also and call it what it is, that it's ugly, that you weren't meant to be self-absorbed. You weren't meant to wallow and and, and run around in your own self-centeredness. You were meant to live for other people. You were meant to be able to do things for them out of love and ask Him to begin to put new life in you. Okay, last thing I'm going to say. As we talk about friendships, I want to view this friendship in light of what we're talking about all semester long relationships and dating and sex and marriage and all this. Now, many of you in here are single, and I realize that I want to talk to you for a second. Because some of you are single by choice, as I mentioned, and you 
think that you have, been, have the gift of singleness, and that's fine and great. Um, some of you are single and you don't want to be. Or some of you just don't want to be in a relationship yet. That's fine. But for those of you who really want to be, you're wondering at times, God, what is your will for my life? What, what should I be doing right now? I mean, no one's asking me out. I, there's no girls that I'm really interested in pursuing. There's no guys that are asking me out or whatever. What do you want me to be doing right now? And from this passage, what I want to tell you is that God's answer to that is for you to love the people around you. It's for you to be the friend that Scripture calls us to be to everyone, not just to those who you date. You should have lots of friends even if you're in a dating relationship. Now, that'll look different. You're not going to be best friends with a bunch of girls if you're a guy. Um, Because do you want to know what's going to be most appealing to other people when they think about, who should I ask out? Or these... What's going to be absolutely most appealing is when someone sees that you are not all about you. That you have something else about you that is saying, you know what, I'm not all up in my own business all the time. That's going to be incredibly attractive. And the only way for you to not be all about you is when you begin to be all about someone else. When you begin to be all about Jesus, I would suggest. When He begins to redefine you, when you see that at the core of what He has done is serving, loving, giving himself for other people. Don't let the friendship of of Jesus be something you ignore as you head out and try to be a better friend. Don't ignore that friendship. You have to have it. It is the fuel for all of our friendships. Let's pray.